CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Bosch Software Innovations. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sun Joke All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sun Joke All. Hello and uh, welcome to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. As always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter, hashtag CTR Live and hashtag IT Security. Today's topic is how to build an IT security team. And our guest for today's show is Adam Rice, who is a Chief Information Security Officer for ATK, and he's a member of the CIO Executive Council. Uh, so, Adam, how are you doing? I am doing fine, thank you. Great. Now, we've always talked extensively on past shows about uh, new th- threats that may be facing the enterprise and things like APT, which is Advanced Persistent Threats, uh, and they are continually uh, morphing. But the question is, how can anyone keep up? We've spoken to quite a few CISOs online and offline, and, and we have seen that people is becoming one of the bigger uh, or most more Uh, chronic challenge, if you will. So, Adam, what we wanted to do today is to look at what's the landscape is, how is it morphing, and how is it going to be impacting what type of crew that is built, or or how is that going to change as the time goes by? So, with that said, the first question is, is there a specific pattern that you see in the way the challenges and threats that organization organizations are facing and the way they're morphing. Can you kind of sit uh, and, and watch it and kind of give it a definition or a pattern? Well, I, I think that that's, that's exactly correct. I think that uh, cybersecurity um, is probably one of the more dynamic uh, professions that are in the IT field. Uh, the threats, the people that we kind of work against, are changing their methods, their means, and um, I think that as those threats change and morph, which they do all the time, it is hard to kind of back that up with a staff with skills and uh, experiences that match those threats. So if you if you look at the, the changing pattern, do you think this is basically becoming a race against people with far more resources, or is that more of our uh, inability to be able to cope up? And then so that's why we say that, okay, the other people have more resources. They are, have bigger institutions which are supporting the intrusion. So I think it's a little of both. I think that your traditional kind of cybersecurity team was a firewall guy, a policy guy, and kind of leaned heavily on the vendor paradigm of signature-based security. And I think as the APT has really kind of exploded in the last five years, it's become pretty obvious, to me anyway, that the kind of that traditional paradigm of signature-based doesn't work very well. And we are moving more towards a threat intelligence-based defense. And, and this is true across especially my industry, where, where our threat is very, very understood. And um, so... When you staff against that kind of model, you have to understand that your adversaries are capitalized to millions and millions of dollars if it's a nation state, for instance, and they certainly seem to have the advantage. So it can be a challenge to convince uh, management that you do need to retool your team to be more effective against these adversaries. And 
one is to say that APTs or, or any kind of this more sophisticated security issues or challenges we are facing is pervasive. But when you talk to quite a few people, there is a percentage and a significant percentage who really are not as threatened by the APTs because they are not above the radar as much. Well, I think it's industry-based. I think that uh, a CISO has to really have an understanding of what their threat model is. Um, I'm lucky in some ways. I work for a defense and aerospace uh, company, so our threat is uh, is described on the front pages of the New York Times. Um, so, <laughs> but if you don't work for for an obvious target um, like finance or you know defense and aerospace, it can be a bit more. Uh, a bit more difficult to really kind of ascertain what your threat is, I think. And so suppose we take the ones who will we'll, we'll perhaps during the show uh, talk about both sides and see how the people side can be handled or can be structured. So starting with the type of organization such as yours, which can make uh, the headlines in New York Times in case there is a breach. So you definitely have to be sensitive. But how, how much sensitivity is enough? Well, I, I, I think that for a company like ours with a, a obvious threat, I think that we do have kind of the advantage of, of leadership from the board of directors to the CEO to the CIO who understand that this is not something that is ambiguous or, or, or ethereal. It is real, and it has a consequence if our adversaries are successful. So they, they understand that, and it makes part of their leadership statement that they, they don't want that to happen, and that flows through the organization, and it, and it allows me to be able to, to staff up with the skills and within my organization what I think are the most effective ways of directly confronting our threat. Now, let's come to the people side. So as any organization which wants to have their people uh, understand the business and having lived the environment for a little bit, they always will be more comfortable in that incremental change that may be coming down the pike. So take, the, for example, the security team. Would you think a security team with, comprised of specific roles that you had envisioned and identified and actually hired for a decade ago? Is that relevant today, or would you think that has significantly changed? And if that's the case, do you think the people who were hired with that old mindset, a decade old mindset, is relevant today? You know, I would say that if, if, if the bad guys that are coming after your network are the advanced adversaries that you read about, if you structured your team, uh, even how most uh, cybersecurity teams are structured five years ago, I think that you would be uh, woefully unprepared to deal with the adversary. I think that over the last probably five years, there has been a big shift in, uh, in what's considered critical skills to, uh, to go after the advanced adversary. Now, if, if somebody is in an industry that perhaps doesn't have the, uh, the APT issue, then Perhaps the more traditional security staffing model would be more appropriate, but for, for, for organizations that have an advanced threat, I would say that the old paradigm does not work. So let's compare the two. So when you, you originally started by saying that maybe uh, the, the traditional security team might have someone from policy, uh, someone who is taking care of the firewalls and other type of uh, preliminary things, could you 
draw a parallel or maybe a difference between five years ago team makeup and the kind of team we need today? Yeah, so five years ago, you would have, just speaking to what you just said, you would have your network uh, appliance or device team, and these would be your security engineers that would take care of your IPSs, your firewalls, your AV, uh, your signature-based tools. And then you would, you would have a, a governance risk and compliance team that would handle your, your, you know, your compliance requirements, your policies, your more softer skills. And then they would combine under the, the CISO to kind of drive a security practice that was based on, you know, reactive security, uh, signature-based security, and then the policy side. So those two jobs are still relevant, but perhaps not as important. I think that the change is, is the addition of a uh, CERT, a computer uh, incident response team that is staffed with a job called a security analyst. And this is a relatively new kind of career. And could you define the security analyst role? What are we analyzing? Something which we don't know enough about? Well, I think that everybody will will uniformly agree that signature-based security doesn't work. I mean, if it did, the vendors would underwrite their products with a guarantee that if there was a breach, they would pay for the remediation. And when I ask my vendors that question, of course, they just laugh at me. But um, so the shift has gone from signature-based security and a kind of reactive stance to a proactive stance that is based primarily on threat intelligence, right? Understanding the MOs, the means, and the indicators of compromise that our advanced adversaries use and then spending time on your network perimeter and inside your network to look for indicators of compromise because traditional security uh, signature-based tools will, will not detect it. Now, come to the type of skills that you say for the advanced, uh, where the organizations are facing some advanced level of threats. Are they always supposed to be by design? We are always saying, oh, APT, something new. Is APT a default type of threat, which is like almost fear of the unknown? And then we start uh, filling up our team with the people who would be able to effectively handle it. But even that flavor of threat that they are expected to uh, you know, save us from, that's also morphing. So how relevant is that incremental skill staff going to be so from today the, to tomorrow? Right. So with with you know, it is kind of an arms race. As we get better uh, at at seeing and preventing uh, the APT, the APT in turn will will try new strategies and com- campaigns using new indicators of compromise to to get in. So the security analyst is a guy that understands some of the probably the required tools that an enterprise would need. Uh, beyond just firewalls, to be able to use threat intelligence. But they have to spend their day really uh, proverbial needle in the haystack. They, they, they look for that, that trace of the bad guy, uh, that indicator of compromise. And it's not like doing a firewall rule where it's, you know, source, destination, port, and enter. These guys have to work with... Uh, very little information, trying to find that one little unusual signature, and then be able to walk the dog back and, and see where it came from and what it's been doing. 
If you took APT out of the equation for a second, would you think there has been any fundamental shift in the way the network and firewall was handled, the way the governance compliance was handled, the way the risk was handled, and the other three, four areas that you had mentioned, which each of them had to be staffed by appropriately skilled people? Well, I think that uh, since the advanced threat has, has kind of crept into our paradigm, I'm finding that, uh, you know, some of the very commodity skills uh, that, that are needed to run a security practice kind of fit that outsourcing model pretty well. So I would, I would certainly hire a more senior uh, firewall engineer or network engineer. I would, I would see that as a critical task, but to hire also a bevy of, of very junior firewall engineers to do kind of that commodity uh, firewall rule changes and just that kind of work, I would probably see that as an opportunity to outsource if, if, if it made sense. Now, if you're saying that the outsourcing is, is basically a standard approach to how people handle security, then there are quite a few organizations, maybe not organizations such as ATK, who do not feel that APT is a threat. So, so they could very well either keep status quo or start looking at outsourcing their security and, and, you know, take a two-week vacation and life is good? Well, I, you know, outsourcing uh, the work is fine, but what you can't outsource is your corporate risk. So if you, if you think that just writing a check to a managed security service provider is going to any way decrease your risk, you're probably wrong. And in some ways, it actually increases your risk, and that, that risk has to be managed uh, regardless who's taking care of the uh, the front door, either the managed security service provider or uh, an internal team. So the decision to go with an MSSP has to be a deliberate one, typically based on just ROI. If, if you want to watch the front door 24 by 7, it, it's typically cheaper to, to go with an MSSP. But you, you have to go into that relationship with two eyes open. There are, there are positives, but there are certainly negatives that need to be managed. Let's uh, take a quick break, listeners. When we come back, let's specifically start identifying the challenges that a CISOs uh, may be facing when they are trying to build a strong IT security team and along with being strong, uh, a team which can actually come hit the ground running at the same time is got the DNA to be able to morph and expand uh, their skill set as the the you know, the landscape, the security landscape is morphing as well. So please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Find out how the HP as a service solution for SAP HANA can help you gain instant, impactful business results without capital investment by logging on to hp.com. Transform information into intelligence and a competitive advantage with a full spectrum of SAP HANA products and services from HP, a global SAP hosting partner. Bosch Software Innovations is proud to sponsor this program. Visit www.bosch-si.com forward slash connected manufacturing to find out how Bosch can help you improve your operational performance and become a manufacturing industry leader in a connected world. Change the way you predict, manage, and produce outcomes. 
Bosch Connected Manufacturing. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sun Jog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Jog All. Welcome back. So, um, Adam, what do you think are the top challenges organizations are facing fundamentally in, uh, in building a strong IT security team to meet these newer challenges? Well, I, I, I think that, number one, I think organizations need to be able to articulate what their threats are and what their risks are and do that, you know, comprehensively and then design their team around those threats. I think that as more and more uh, industries are being hit by the APT and advanced adversaries, and, and those aren't just nation states. Uh, criminals are picking up their MOs. I mean, the, the, the success of, you know, your, your usual suspects has been noticed by also a more criminal elements. So the, the advanced threat is, is certainly kind of broadening its, its repertoire. So as, as organizations, uh, you know, sadly, typically discover they have a problem when they're told they have a problem. So if you don't have a good handle on what your threat is and what your risks are, you usually make that discovery with a uh, victim notification from the FBI or um, a notification from somebody that your stuff is, is out in the wild. Uh, and then, then there is this reactive approach to uh, throwing money at the problem and, and trying to uh, fix something quickly. So if you understand your threats and you understand your risks and you can structure your team uh, deliberately, I think is is probably a more sound approach, though I don't think it happens that often. Usually people change security when there's been a problem. Um, but the biggest challenge, I think, is finding uh, the skills. There is a, uh, from at least from, from where I sit, a, a real lack of uh, available talent. Could you further inventory the specific competencies and skills that you're looking for in a certain mix, which is not available readily or we are not able to attract them? So I think it's kind of across the spectrum. It's not just the security analyst role that I, I described, although they are an experienced security analyst with, with experience working with the APT is a hard thing to find. Um, but even when you come to more traditional security roles like an advanced uh, firewall engineering team or security architect, uh, people with deep skills and knowledge across kind of that, that vendor palette, uh, even, even those roles, there is a shortage of experienced skills. So uh, if, if I were to have a senior position open where I wanted somebody with, I mean, real you know, mid to late career experience in, in some of these skills, it would be hard to find, both in the security analyst roles as well as kind of the traditional security engineering roles. They, there are more jobs than there are people, it seems. 
And where is the expected source from where these people will get the training or like like we, we spoke some time back about big data teams. So they had the same issue where they're saying we want a lot more people than they're available. So then the question is, who's going to churn those people out? There is no degree, if you will, uh, at the engineering level. Even if they're taught certain things, how qualified are the folks who are teaching? Because they themselves don't have the experience. And if you don't have the experience, then you will never fill the role. So w- what is the source? Because you and us... Uh, can be sitting here two years from now and we could have the same issue to a, to a larger degree because more and more people are going to face the issue and, mm-hmm. and supplies less than the demand. I agree. I, I think that universities and technical schools uh, are woefully poor at turning out uh, graduates that actually have skills that are, are usable on day one without additional training. I, 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 I don't think that, that we do a good job at that at all. I think that uh, where people gain their skills is when they do have a job or get an entry-level job, uh, they acquire training through their current employer and, and build up their skills uh, with the investment their employer has made. And then when they move, they move with those skills. So most, are, most of the experience that is gained is when somebody has worked you know, in progressively greater roles within a security organization. And and that pipeline is, is tight right now. And what is the hope? Because uh, as I mentioned, if this is uh, a choke point for most of us, and on the other side, the people who are intruders or the ones who are causing us the pain, they are actually enjoying the fact that we are becoming more and more helpless. But can we live like this? Can we plan our organizational risk mitigation like this? Who's coming in the forefront to be able to take this lead role and say, okay, I'm going to, as an organization, work towards it, or we, we are a bunch of organizations who are going to work towards building these skills and share those skills in some form. What's happening at your end? So I, I think that the responsibility to train, hire, and retain uh, security uh, professionals, at least in my organization, uh, stays within my organization. One thing that does work collaboratively is the threat intelligence and other processes that are shared uh, are enjoyed probably across many organizations. Um, The defense and aerospace industry figured out a long time ago that there was no competitive advantage to not sharing your threat intelligence. And so uh, across several industries, a lot of that threat intelligence is shared and, and techniques and uh, methods of detecting the APT, and, and certainly our security analysts learn tons from that kind of broader collaborative environment than they would if they did not have that. So uh, probably if I could point to any single uh, thing that moves the ball forward for us is beyond just having the skills, is being able to collaborate in that larger environment to get that threat intelligence. So if you get threat intelligence, would you think you're better off getting people who may not have that level of experience and expertise that you will ideally want? Instead, get someone who is semi to, 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 to a limited degree there and then take them under your wings and arm them with the threat intelligence and the training and education and mentoring that you could offer so that you got a little more uh, brighter light, if you will, at the end of the tunnel. 
So I think that's absolutely it. I think that that the way that most organizations have to approach this is try to hire junior staff that that look bright and and are eager to learn, and uh, and have the competencies to learn the skill, and then right bring them into the organization uh, at the bottom, and then over time, you know, uh, probably in a in a year or so, they will have have absolutely gained their feet and and. And can do the job well. Uh, I, I I think that that is probably the smartest approach, is to hire low in the organization and then and then train them yourself. And if you were to train yourself, would you say that we have enough people within our respective organizations who have the level of uh, experience and and they can mentor those junior? Because then we are limiting what our people knew. No, I I, it, I think that in most cases, if an organization has a cert um, that is that is up and running, that there, you do have that kind of that that legacy skill within the cert. That if you do bring in uh, younger people, we we do this deliberately. Um, we we hire junior staff, and then we go through a deliberate process to get them trained up. If you have a rock star in terms of security management and risk and, and other skills and competences needed. Where does that person go to learn? Do they expect some outside resource to be available or the, the maximum exposure they can get to what's happening next is just by trial and error within the environment they are? So I think they learn within their peer group. I, I mentioned to you that we collabor- collaborate a lot within our industry on emerging threats and methods and and so on and and within that that same forum there are workshops and there are symposiums and there are training opportunities and we we leverage those uh to their fullest extent to make sure that the people are going out because the the emerging threat or the advanced threat as i mentioned is dynamic with new mo's and so it is a continuous learning process to be able to be effective as a security analyst. Would you have a benchmark of sorts which you would expect your people to be able to live up to? And and then is there a way to measure that they have reached that level of skill? And if not, then the delta could be met by some external third-party expertise who would come and help fill the gaps in terms of what their experience level and exper- expertise and competencies are? Well, I, I think that a, uh, a scientist from Lockheed Martin uh, described uh, the APT in, uh, in, they called it a kill chain. And from left to right, it went from the initial reconnaissance of an advanced threat to the far right side of the kill chain or to the bottom of the kill chain was the exfiltration of data uh, from the network to, to stand on the ground and say, we will not have an APT problem. We will stop it at the front door, I think. Uh, is is not a realistic goal. I think that there are a lot of ways to stop it within the kill chain, but you need to measure your success by stopping the APT or recognizing it and putting proactive blocks in early within that kill chain. So during the initial uh, reconnoitering of your networks by the adversaries or their social engineering campaigns or their spear phishing campaigns, if you can see those coming over the horizon before they land on, on your uh, user's desktop, then you are certainly uh, on the right side of the curve. Um, 
it's it's the it's the organizations that don't even realize they have a problem until they get the victim notification from the FBI. And then what they will typically do is rush for outside help to come in and leverage commercial threat intelligence databases to uh to to look at their networks, to figure out where the problem is and then how to clean it up. The the problem with those companies are is that their their business model is for people to to show up at their front doorstep fully on fire with a checkbook in hand, you know, and a boot mark in their butt from the board saying, fix this now. So those those outside organizations tend to be very expensive. Um, so if you have a problem and you find out about it late, this is where this high cost of remediation comes in, I think. Now, would you agree that when you look for people with those, you know, not commonly found skills and that uh, unusual amount of experience and expertise, they kind of recognize it and a demand supply gap allows them to encash it by being in consulting versus joining somebody on their payroll? Do you think then you, you could perhaps have people with that stable set of skills who are more likely to stay with you? Uh, you create that type of an organization and, and maintain that stability. And for those special needs, you keep people at an arm's length who are really specialized, but they, they choose not to join your organization. Do you think that's a safer way of handling your ongoing needs? I, I think it all comes back to what, what your organizational threats are and what your risks are. I would say that if if a if a company does not have a real compelling story, uh, to defend against, you know, an advanced threat, then that that might work. I mean, there might be real sound business logic around that approach and save on OPEX and headcount. But I think that if you are in organizations that have that bullseye spray painted on your back, I think that that is a necessary and critical skill to have in-house. So you will try to kind of buy that skill, whatever the cost is. Is that what the message you're sending out? Well, you, you have to hire the skill, and then you have to train them and retain them. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And let's talk about the crown jewels. Every organization can definitely identify the crown jewels because you cannot try to be uh, boiling the ocean and trying to secure any and every asset that may be out there. And that's why prioritization and rationalization is important. So in the security context, which are the crown jewels? How does an organization come to know? And how do you prevent distraction for your security team to try to go after any and every asset that any and every business user says is important to them and eventually have a finite number of items that you're going to work towards securing? How do you create a method to this madness? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back and explore. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. Bosch Software Innovations is proud to sponsor this program. Visit www.bosch-si.com forward slash connected manufacturing to find out how Bosch can help you improve your operational performance and become a manufacturing industry leader in a connected world. Change the way you predict, manage, and produce outcomes. Bosch Connected Manufacturing. HP is proud to sponsor this program. 
Find out how the HP as a service solution for SAP HANA can help you gain instant, impactful business results without capital investment by logging on to HP.com. Transform information into intelligence and a competitive advantage with a full spectrum of SAP HANA products and services from HP, a global SAP hosting partner. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So, uh, Adam, we, we have heard quite a bit about organizations identifying their crown jewels and focusing their energies to secure those crown jewels. But the challenge comes when either the business unit leaders are sometimes not able to or they don't take the time to ex- identify those crown jewels so that we can focus our energies or, in many cases, your own team as CISO's team, not your as a company, but uh, overall a CISO's team is invited to talk to business unit leaders or other users, and everybody gives their own priority. And suddenly you could have a long laundry list of items which somebody would like to see secured, and everybody is going to pull their own influence to get that be given the right priority. How do you handle the, the distraction that could come because you cannot be everywhere and have that leadership conversation at your level alone. Um, well, we we kind of approach this uh, in, in in a few ways. Um, the first thing that we look at when it comes to finding out where the family jewels are, as it were, is what are our regulatory and compliance requirements. Uh, in our industry, a lot of the stuff that we make is protected under federal law and uh, statute. Um, so our data is—it's actually—it's actually a violation of the rules for our data to to leave the United States or go to non-U.S. persons. So we leverage the—I think foremost—we look at our regulatory burden and our compliance burden to kind of set our standard on what is the precious stuff. And, and what is not. And in, in our industry, a lot of our data is covered under EAR and ITAR, the two rules. So it's not really even a discussion with the business units uh, at that point. The, the law is what it is, and we have this fiduciary responsibility to kind of protect that data. And if the data does become loose or lost, we, we have to disclose that to the Department of Commerce, the Department of State, and our customers. And, and that's all embodied in in the regulation. Where it comes to more uh, kinds of uh, intellectual property questions, we what I, what I like to do is rely on policy or data categorization policy that describes data in in several flavors all the way from, you know, restricted to public. And the responsibility is on the owners of that data to appropriately categorize their data within four or five general categories. And then each one of those categories, in turn, have a commensurate uh, kind of IT security approach, all the way to our ITAR control data or our very, you know, 
proprietary data, financial data. Uh, that stuff that stuff is protected in a certain way, all the way to like our public website and other publicly facing uh, information has have different security controls. So we publish these policies and then we get support of leadership to enforce them. And then if the business units fail to categorize or lose control of their data that turns out to match one of these categories, then the responsibility falls back on them. So your environment definitely, and that's why I say you're blessed that you have regulations helping you out. In many cases, when we hear, and, and I'd love to get your take on it, so there are organizations who may not have such a clear-cut definition of what crown jewels are and the, their definitions, how to identify which ones those are, and how are they changing? How is that, that priority changing? So should the CISOs team be chasing the business to be able to extract from them, or it is somehow to be put in the governance structure that the business unit leaders are sharing the the current state as well as how things change so they send as a delta report if you will and and CISOs then know exactly how to prioritize their people's activities so that appropriate uh, family jewels as you said could be safeguarded so I, I think that it has to be driven by policy I think that if the CISO in any organization is trying to chase down that sum total of all data that's produced within the organization at any moment and be able to stuff those into the appropriate buckets and then make sure those appropriate controls are in place, I don't think it, it would ever work. I think that, that there has to be policy that is either, uh, you know, an information security policy or a, an information technology policy that is endorsed and enforced from above that puts that governance responsibility directly on those data owners that, you know, the corporate policy says that if the data looks like this and it, you know, you describe it fully and you put a categorization on it, that it has to be controlled like this. And this, this doesn't need to be data that is, is managed through regulation or compliance. This can be anything the organization wishes it to be. And then the CISO's role goes from chasing that into just, you know, internal audit and compliance uh, to the policy, policy compliance checks. Um, and then if there is a problem, they work to remediate it. Uh, and if there is data lost or, or inappropriately handled, then it becomes a, a question of, of policy violation. And then you just work with HR or, or however the organization deems to deal with that issue. So one is to create a policy. Uh, when we see examples of this this particular strategy that you mentioned, where I'm sure CISOs and their team may have tried to enforce a policy, but somehow even that policy is not driving the kind of change and the visibility that CISOs team wants, what you think could be going wrong? Well, then uh, probably you don't have enough buy-in from senior management. Um, they're not seeing it as a problem. Uh, they're not seeing it as as an imperative. And if that's the case, uh, then a CISO probably needs to make it very clear what they think the risks that that complacency is bringing to the organization, make sure that everybody understands what that risk is. But in the end, organizationally, if there is a cultural resistance to doing it, I don't think that a CISO uh, is going to be able to 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 make it happen, but will they not lose their job if if there is an actual 
threat which converts into a damage and uh, he, he or she cannot say, I told you so, because now the damage is done and he, that, that policy was not enforced and does nothing was put in place to save those jewels and now those jewels are lost or damaged and there you go. So, so who, who, who should be left holding the bag in this case? Well, I think it should be the date owners completely. And, and although I've never been in that position, I've heard of CISOs that have been in the position where, where they have all this responsibility and no authority at all to, to, to make people change the way they're behaving, and, and nor do they get the backing of their management to help enforce the policies. And if you're a CISO in that position, you know, then, then my first thought would be maybe you're, you're not in an organization that's ready for a real CISO. And do you think there is something to be said about CISO perhaps maybe trying to do the best job, but their own people coming back to the team that they have put in place? They are not able to go out and, and evangelize it effectively for business u- unit leaders or other users to be able to take it seriously. Do you think there is some cell job that has to be done at all levels in, within the CISO team and they, we have to have that competency built into each member of the team? No, absolutely. I think that the CISO has to understand that their position exists, the organization exists to support the business, that to look at risks and risk management purely from a cyber technology point of view is myopic. I think that what the CISO's message has to be back to the business has to be couched in the terms of risk to business, right? Either violation of, of regulation and compliance or NDAs or contracts, um, and also the loss of proprietary data. So if, if the CISO has the ability to be able to kind of make that risk, uh, kind of that risk statement with a business flavor to it, then you're speaking the same language as the business managers. And even though they might not necessarily agree with uh, your conclusions, they certainly suddenly are speaking the same language. Rather than, uh, you know, if you come up to a business manager and say you have, you know, this heartbleed vulnerability on your open SSL servers on this stuff and I have to take it down and that is going to result in a loss of the business, they're not going to understand really what's going on and you're, you're communicating past each other. So I think a big, a big part of the new CISO kind of um, skill is to be able to take a big step out of just the basic technology realm and be able to work within the business units of an organization. And that is a cell job, right? You have to have a traveling road show. You need to have security awareness training for managers as well as technicians and a number of other things. So if you were to look at the type of mindset we need in the team, so there are two schools of thought here. One is saying that now we've got things like APT looming, so we have to become in that uh, proactive mindset, and we have to start looking under the hood everywhere to see if there's any threat, and that should be the mindset of a team. Second is, after having uh, worn that hat for a number of years with this APT being out there already, they say it's simply not possible. Instead, we should have the team focus on how to react better when there is a threat which is evident. So in your view, based on where you sit and the way you see overall industry, what type of mindset would you promote and, and uh, manage your team to adopt for it to be effective? So I, I, don't, I don't want to be in the business of incident response. 
I don't want to be in the business of picking up the pieces after after the incident happens. It's uh, it's costly. It's it's damaging to the business. So I would say that that you have to get in front of the threat and actually do your best to stop it before it becomes a problem. Uh, I think that you have to be able to respond to those problems effectively and have a you know tried and tested incident response process. But I, I think that remaining reactive is going to put you too far behind the power curve. You're going to know there's a problem after it has occurred. So, you know, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So if the, if, if the bad guys are stealing your data and you're just trying to react after the fact, I think that, um, I think that you're on the wrong side of the issue. So what you just mentioned is one school of thought, and I, I'm bringing you back to that school of thought where they say they tried staying proactive and spend a lot of their energy into being proactive, but it's still because things like APT start much earlier in a much more stealth manner than you and I uh, or our team could can envision. So, so we invariably end up seeing one or the other incident happening, one or the other holes getting created. So if we put most of our energies there, maybe our response, ability to respond slacks because there are limited resources, you've got a limited number of people. So what's that balance then? So if you say you're going to be proactive, would you be 100% proactive and, and not put that much attention to reactive? And if yes, then what is that that mix? So again, you know, it, it comes back to, to what does your organization do? What is your compliance burden? What's your regulatory burden? And what's your threats? In, in, in the industry that, that I work in, the, uh, you know, we, we don't want any APT in the house. And we, we focus a lot of our resources at preventing that. And it, it takes skills and tools that an organization typically would not invest in. And, and some of the tools are quite expensive. Um, but, but in the case of the aerospace and defense industry, it is typical to, to take that approach because we understand what our threats are and what our regulatory burden is. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, if you, are, if you, if you don't have anything that is worth that kind of protection, and if you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, well, who cares if they take it? Really, who cares? then probably it's not a good business decision to spend the money on trying to get in front of an advanced threat and be more reactive. Um, it's a business decision, really. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back and now come back to the actual skill and competency and, and management, uh, you know, management uh, skill development that is required for the security team members to be able to do the job. So the process is only limited to collaboration among the peer group, or there is some way to start grooming them with the right mindset, which will allow them to effectively serve the purpose for which they were even hired in the first place. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Bosch Software Innovations is proud to sponsor this program. Visit www.bosch-si.com 
forward slash connected manufacturing to find out how Bosch can help you improve your operational performance and become a manufacturing industry leader in a connected world. Change the way you predict, manage, and produce outcomes. Bosch Connected Manufacturing. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Find out how the HP as a service solution for SAP HANA can help you gain instant, impactful business results without capital investment by logging on to HP.com. Transform information into intelligence and a competitive advantage with a full spectrum of SAP HANA products and services from HP, a global SAP hosting partner. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So, Adam, in, in, a, in any organization when you try to develop, you want to have the appropriate quality, quantity, and cost attached to the workforce in a, such a way, in a, such a balanced way so that it most effectively meets the business objectives. And that could be, that is very true for whether it's a regular IT team or, or a security team. Is there some sort of a mapping done between the risks that are outlined uh, by the business and, of course, you as a leader, and then there is a mapping done for workforce, or is it rather a fluid uh, calculation? Well, I, I think that it's a little of both. I think that when a, a strategy is, is formulated to, you know, stop the APT and the advanced threat, that that, that will come with an organizational structure that that is considered effective. And out of that will will come a budget, you know, your operational charge, your headcount, and then tools and maintenance and so on. And that that budget needs to be negotiated against the business with, you know, the CISO as the as the expert saying that no, we we if we want to accomplish the task, we really need to have this kind of organization, that organization costs that. And then once the organization is established and running year to year, then then obviously you have you have your your budget uh, your budget challenges like anywhere else where th- there is an expectation that you'll you know grow your opex by a certain percentage or keep it flat or your capex at a certain percentage, and then you have to come in and just like all managers negotiate your budget to be uh, as effective as you can be. Now, if there is a a new threat or a uh, a new issue. Uh, comes over the horizon that is, you know, extraordinary, then then you would have to go up to your management and, and be able to describe what the issue was. And then if the fix costs money or people or tools, be able to articulate that, convince them that it was important and needed, and then move from there. Is there a current ability for CISO and their teams to recognize specific connection between 
what the current state is and to what degree are they meeting the needs and then how the changes are happening and correspondingly what changes we'll have to bring about in terms of, again, quantity and quality of skills and competencies within the team to meet the business objectives. Right. So so I think that that speaks to being able to put key uh, success indicators or key indicators of success on the table as part of as part of your business statement that that you will you know you will have no APTs you will you will do this you will do that and you will do this and it has to be something that you can look back at and be and compare your performance against and then within the organization security is a kind of an odd one uh many many organizations have a deeply matrix structure when it comes to security Many of the network-based tasks for security could be done by the network team with a dotted line back up to a security organization that is lighter uh, in technical skills. Those skills could be outsourced, or in some cases, those skills could be kept within an autonomous security organization. It's it's different everywhere. But I, I think that whatever the way that it is done, there has to be a lot of deliberate uh analysis done that you have the skills and the structure to meet what you are trying to protect against and not the other way around, if that makes sense. What kind of culture, what are the tenets of a culture which will allow a security team to thrive and effectively meet the security needs which are already heavily demanding, plus they are getting worse? I think that the most important thing organizationally or culturally is that the security team has got to be uh, trusted by the leadership, that they are doing a a job that is important to the organization, uh, and that that job, unfortunately, also creates a certain degree of inconvenience for the employees of that organization. Uh, Inevitably, um, there is some of that. But if the senior management at the CEO, the board, and the CIO level recognize that what the security team is doing is critical in this day and age and provides that air cover for the team, uh, you know, within a very short time, it's understood throughout the organization that the IT security team uh, is, is not negotiating. They are, they are there as an arbitrator of policy. And that if if you don't like the policy, there is always a way to get an exception, but but the rule is is that you do not violate the security policy. What's the subculture that you recommend should exist within security? Because while you would like to have an organizational culture support security as a function, but what culture would you like to see exist within that security team so that they make everyone proud? So I, I I try to kind of get away from being the team of contrarians, right? The team that just says no, the team where people are frustrated with dealing with, where you know the security team is just the group of contrarians. I I think that by leaning on policy and 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 having your team be sensitive to business issues and making sure that they realize the reason why we have our jobs is to support business success, and that our policies can't describe every contingency all the time, and that there is always an exception to policy as long as the risk is understood and accepted at the appropriate level within the organization. So 
the subculture would be is be have some business acumen, you know, and and respect the business. One final question for you. When you look in the mirror as a security leader, what do you think at all times you should have on top of your mind and which areas do you think you have to continually evolve as a leader to shoulder this huge responsibility? So the thing that keeps me awake at night is the advanced threat. They are, you know, the proverbial boogeyman. Uh, what I really judge my success on is stopping the unauthorized exfiltration of data from our network. And really, that is where everything else revolves around that cornerstone. So uh, the thing that I always try to tell my team is that every decision that we make and everything that we do has to be within one or two degrees of separation from that goal, right? That is why we are here to stop the unauthorized exfiltration of data. On behalf of the show and our listeners, I'd really like to thank you, Adam, for sharing your thoughts on how to build an IT, an effective IT security team. And uh, listeners, please like us on Facebook, search for CIO Talk Radio, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. Thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Radio. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Please join Sun Joke All next Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Eastern Time for another hour of CIO Talk Radio on the Voice America Business Channel. CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Bosch Software Innovations.